This is The Beige and the Bold, and today we are watching Reunion. I'm Van Belding, and I watched this episode when it originally aired. I'm Jay Donks, and I watched this episode when I was about nine years old. <laughs> All right, you ready to start? Absolutely. In three, two, one, engage. So this is, I think, the second installment of our Cleon Politics storyline, depending on how you count it. Well, um, I love Klingon politics, so this already is uh, close to my heart. Yeah, and the next generation always gets flack for being uh, episodic and for kind of being facile and not covering things deeply, but they, this is where we get 80% of our knowledge of Klingon culture. Absolutely. We learn a lot about the Klingons from this one episode, and it's a, a really great dive into how their society works oh yeah um, i mean we expand on Worf's discommendation from earlier um we see more of the i guess the difference between you know their their ideals and the actual execution of it yeah and we um, we meet kalar uh for a while who is probably one of the only progressive klingons uh we ever get to see <laughs> yeah well she's from the federation she's i guess she has dual citizenship yeah, she's half Klingon, I believe. Or yeah, is she half Klingon? Yeah. So Alexander, I think, is like three quarters Klingon. I think this is the first time we see the Vorcha cruiser, too. And what a beautiful ship it is. Oh, yeah, it's nice. This episode actually has quite a few great shots of the Klingon ships. And uh, growing up, it definitely pushed my love for the Klingons. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's very true to the Cleon aesthetic of the, the greens and the reds, which is uh, so much of just their look. Yeah, and it carries that aggressive, uh, you know, winged ship style <laughs> that they like to use. I mean, you look from the you know the Cavort to the Negvar, they all have their wings, they all have that green, and you know when you see that green, you're probably in trouble. Yeah, the, the Negvar is kind of an ugly baby, but, you know, it looks mean enough. So It's big and beefy and probably can intimidate a lot, so... Yeah. So does the transporter chief that she knows that she's got, like, two people beaming over? Or is Kaylar like, oh, I have a kid? Did you get the kid? Yeah, yeah. I wonder how they communicate that. Like, hey, we're expecting one person. Oh, there's a kid on the pad? I guess I'll just transport them, too. You know, this kid could have just been hugging his mom goodbye, and next thing he knows, he's, he's on a Federation ship. Yeah. Maybe the transporter chief on the other end kind of, like, sends an electronic manifest, and the transporters talk to each other. And They, they and must have like, something maybe, like that, I, I would have to assume. That, or they just, like, you know, shoot each other a message on WhatsApp, and they're like, yo, there's one more coming. Yeah. Uh, we talked about that in what, Best of Both Worlds where they're supposed to beam down to this planet and there's just a huge crater and it's like, hey, O'Brien, like, did you want to tell us about the huge crater? Because, like, it's right in the middle of the town. I mean, you're going to beam us into. O'Brien in Next Gen is basically a guy who shows up to work because he has to. Um, he, I mean, yeah, I... Uh, we know what happens to him in DS9. We know what he's been through with Setlick 3. So... Uh, my take has always been he got a cake assignment after the the Cardassian War. Yeah, and he's kind of just there. He, he's working his eight hours, and he's just like, I'm going to beam people up, beam people down. I, I'm okay with this. I just don't want to see any more crazy shit. Yeah. 
He does a good job of avoiding that. Not drama. I'm sure he's in the background for a lot of drama. Oh, he's probably gossiping with all the girls down in 10 forward. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think I, I accuse this this show of being swinging bachelors in space. Like, no one's responsible. They can have any kind of romantic attachment whenever. Um, and they decide to make Worf into a single dad, which is really uh, it's a big twist. And progressive for its time. Uh, you know, there probably weren't a lot of single dads getting mainstream media attention back, uh, you know, in the day. Oh, yeah. Single moms were still a thing, which Kalar is for a little while. Um, you know, she, she has this baby. She doesn't tell Worf about it, which is so Kalar. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things like, oh, well, you, you, what would you have done? It's like, well, give the guy a choice. Yeah, I... People like Kalar. They, they did not want to kill Kalar for this. Uh, I like Kalar, but I realize she does things like not tell Worf that she had a kid, his kid. And not tell her kid that the person she he just, just met is his dad. I mean, this is a kid who will go on to find out that Worf is his dad right after seeing his dead mother. Yeah. And he takes it uh, all very well. Yeah, he does. I mean, he's... I guess he's one year old at this point, uh, which is foreshadowing for how quickly Cleon's age, I guess. Yeah, so. that blew my mind. I'm like, that kid is like six or seven. Come on. You're not fooling anyone. You're not getting the free meals anymore. Uh, they're Cleons. They have soap opera rapid aging syndrome, you know? They grow at the speed of plot. Um. So yeah, and we have a pretty good pretty good scene here between these two, which is so Worf. Because Worf is like the the conservative Christian member of the crew. He he's is got a lot yeah. of rules. And and so much shame. He he's more I, oh, I yeah. almost go more Catholic, you know? He's just he just carries oh, that yeah. shame around. Everything he does is a shame and you know, you can't know me because I was discommodated and, you know, everyone thinks I'm terrible. Like he sounds oh, like yeah. me when I was seventeen. Yeah, yeah, and he's he internalizes all of that, and that that gives him a kind of a, a unique character among the crew. He's not just a Cleon; he's a Cleon who has you know, chooses to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's a Klingon with depression. It's you know, <laughs> who knows what they're like. Um, he holds himself to a, to a very high standard. Oh, absolutely, um, uh, an impossible standard. And uh, when he does that, it never works out. Like he. He always tries to be, like, the epitome of a Klingon. But he misses so much obvious things in his own culture because he wasn't there for all of it. I think he misses the corruption. And I think that's one of the ways in which, you know, our culture, at least in the early years of TNG, isn't Federation culture. Federation culture is the idealized version of humanity. We have more in common with the aliens. And one of the things we have in common with the Cleons is uh, how short we fall of our own stated ideals. Oh, absolutely. It's like half the Klingons will talk about how honorable they are while making plots to take down the other behind their back. <laughs> yeah, while having collusions with the Romulans to win the Cleon election. Damn Romulans! So, <laughs> so but you know, it's a good thing to like about the Romulans. They're kind of uh, this fascinating Cold War threat. I mean, the Romulans I absolutely uh, adore for the mystique that's around them, despite them being focused in Nemesis and 
definitely having some attention in Deep Space Nine. We still don't know a ton about the Romulans and their inner workings. They are so mysterious. And uh, And I I think that mystique is good up to a point. Um, After, you know, what is it, 14 years and four movies, we should have as good a grasp on them as we do for the Cleons. Um, And really all we get are just little snippets that work for whatever plot we're we're running this week. I agree, I agree. I do do wish we had gotten more about the Romulans, specifically for me in Enterprise. I feel that was a missed opportunity, but... We'll always have to wonder what those sneaky Romulans were up, were up to. Yeah. Uh, I think in season three, there's like two times where Tomalock almost starts a war. Um, but then later Romulus is like, eh, I don't really want a war. We're going to do this Cleon thing now. So, I mean, the guy just wants to have a war. Like, can't everyone just go along with it already? Tomalock is super into that war. But, uh, but you know, Picard... Uh, works his magic he's doing his diplomatic thing yeah so we find out that uh, the empire is nearing civil war um, <laughs> uh, Kempek Chancellor Kempek is nearing death and Duras and Gowron are fighting over who's going to be the leader yeah how could feudalism and corruption have gone so wrong <sighs> who knew yeah and, so, uh, and we learn. Hmm? I was going to say this uh, when Worf finds us out, he is uh, immediately back to shy, disgraced Worf. He does not want to be seen around Duras at all. Right, which is good. He he is a walking diplomatic faux pas. Like regardless of whatever Picard's issue is, it's like yeah, like respect their freaking culture. You have other security guards to do this stuff. And meanwhile, but... Picard's just strong arming. Like no, 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 I want Worf. Because I'm just going to make his life miserable and make him be around people who think he's crap. Yeah, and he's also, it's offensive to the Cleons. Um, it's just insulting. So I don't, I don't get his angle with that. It's, it's one of those situations where he respects people's stupid culture in his, their idiotic ways. Yeah, he, like, he'll, he'll follow your culture up to a certain point and he's like, yo, man, my friend didn't do crap. And y'all are shitting on him. He's coming no matter what, like it or not. And uh, you know, you know, Picard sometimes has to walk that line of like, am I doing what's best diplomatically, or am I doing what's best for the member of my crew? Yeah. And I don't, I don't, no idea what his motivation is in terms of Worf and the discommendation. But here we learn that Duras is involved, and that somehow raises the stakes. Well, because I believe yeah. Picard. And Worf both know that Duras is the direct reason he was discommodated and that it was all bullshit. Yeah. So they both know what's up, and yet Picard still goes into this treating Duras way more fair than anyone should let a creepy guy like Duras, <laughs> you know, be treated. He walks into his first scene, and you're just like, okay, this is the dude who did it. Yeah, what a dick, right? Yeah, I guess, you know, we don't have as expanded a view of Cleon politics as Picard might. So if they're like, hey, here's some Cleon what that the audience has never heard of, but Picard knows and he'd be bad for the Federation Treaty. Just put Duras in there. Save us all some trouble. Yeah. So And so not only does Kempek want uh, Picard to be the arbiter of succession, 
He also wants him to do, investigate his own murder uh, and find out <laughs> who's been poisoning this whole time. So now Ricard has double duty as diplomat and basically investigator. He gets to be Dixon Hill again. Yeah, yeah. I um, I just watched I just watched Altered Carbon, so it is refreshing to see an intriguing version of the i need you to solve my murder uh mystery because i always love that it's one of those great uh sci-fi tropes and uh this is next gen just being like now's our time to do it and i gotta say i believe they did it really well this is definitely uh an episode that i i enjoy very much oh yeah it's great i can see wharf trying to be a parent Worf as a parent uh, is, is sometimes like me as a parent. You, you try to be nice, you know, you try and, and eventually you're just like, no more. And hopefully they listen. Alexander does not seem like shaken much by the stern looks he gets from Worf. If that was my dad, <laughs> I would be hiding in a closet. Yeah. But you know, Alexander's been raised without many boundaries i assume so yeah he looks like a kid who's just been like you get to run wild do whatever you do kid you know his mom's basically a a hippie right so you know he's probably just running around buck naked half the time yeah and of course worf is shocked by this but he shouldn't be no it's like what are you doing you hook up with a hippie and you're like a you know a a conservative christian man what do you think's gonna happen to the child that you don't know about it's going to be a little hippie child. So, so we have. I guess this is their first parenting fight over how to raise Alexander. Oh my god, Worf arguing over like what traditions to use uh, is always great. It's yeah. it's him just getting super upset that nothing that things aren't being followed to the letter of the law. Yeah, he he definitely wants things to be a certain way. And uh, you can he knows that idea, and you can tell that he hasn't had Alexander around or been around most any children much, uh, oh, yeah. because he's just he thinks that he can just apply this, and the kid's gonna follow it. Yeah, that that's an interesting parallel because that's sort of Picard's issue with kids. Picard's very organized and restrained, and that makes that gives him problems with kids. Yeah, it's like these guys like hate children yet boarded the Federation's <laughs> version of a cruise ship. Yeah. Well, I, I've i always kind of seen the Picard, Riker, and Geordi thing as kind of a three stages of command kind of deal. And I wish that they focused more on Geordi as a leader in this series. Absolutely. You know, because he goes from, like, Lieutenant Junior Grade to Lieutenant Commander in, like, two years. Um, and we don't really look at his leadership or how that affects him or anything like that. No, he's, um, he's never really put into those, like, super clutch situations. And yeah. uh, that's something that I feel DS9 did really well with the characters they brought from Next Gen. Worf and O'Brien both get put into situations where they're ha- they're having to lead on their own. They're having to stand on their own as characters. And that's something that Jory didn't really get a lot, or at least enough of, I feel. Not enough of, no. I think the most characterization he gets is, oh, he's a friendly guy. Yeah, he's a friendly blind guy, but he can see, so it's okay. I think we just had the line there. I think it's the best line of the episode. <laughs> Thanks. Where, um, you know, uh, 
Picard has a wait, and then Daros like, why are we waiting for? Oh, and Picard uh, just hits him back with, there's no delay. This is the time I have chosen. Which is just like that big dick diplomacy of Picard. I know your culture. I know how things work. You're not going to push me around. I got this. Yeah. And that's very clear. It's very clear, I think, to push those boundaries. Um, and just try to take as much stuff as you can. Oh, absolutely. Like, Klingon culture is all about, like, if someone pushes you, you push back harder. Right. And It's about... Oh, go ahead. It, it's about that challenge and being strong enough to resist that challenge. Exactly. Uh, and having, like, the social pressure, you know, to kind of make this, this field around you uh, in terms of power and, and social power. Uh, and it's interesting to contrast that with honor, which is an entire system of self-restraint. Yeah, it's a lot of ego mixed with honor. Right. Ideally, but I think you see which one ends up playing a bigger role on the ground. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Klingons are... Uh, they just love to talk about honor, as you said, and they just don't live up to it nearly as much as you would hope they would. <laughs> Yeah, but it makes them feel very real. Um, and here's Picard saying, hey, look, um, maybe Duras' father consorted with Romulans, but that doesn't mean Duras did. I have a principled opposition for us believing that the bad guy is bad. Um, and that's it's a little moment where, you know, we have Picard's integrity on display. Yeah, and I mean, Picard, if anything, he's got that integrity. <laughs> yeah. Um, even though, I mean, we know Duras is complicit in the cover-up. So, uh, we don't really dig into it too deeply. And here, Worf is like, Cleons don't use poisons. Like, yeah, Worf, they do. Yeah. They do, Worf. <laughs> oh, child, the things you don't know. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing so, that, like, just stands out to me in this is, uh, it's our, f- I, our second look at Gowron, I believe? Or first look at Gowron? First look at First Gowron. look at Gowron, Yeah. And, uh, by God, he's got those eyes. You know, I didn't notice it the first time I saw this episode because I was just a kid, but, you know, you go watch DS9, you see him a lot more. He has yeah. the creepiest bug eyes I've ever seen. Yeah. And that would be the most terrifying thing on the battlefield, just him and his crazy eyes. Oh, yeah, no, he, he definitely has the crazy eyes. The other thing about Robert O'Reilly is the fact that... Um, he has this very subtle Cajun accent, like this authentically Cajun accent. Uh, and it works so great for his character. It gives him a little bit of exoticism. Yes. Uh, do you so. know, was he uh, was he a Shakespearean actor uh, like um, Patrick Stewart and, the, and many of the others? I don't know. No. All I know about Robert O'Reilly is that he's been, all, he's been a guest star as a lot of like thugs yeah. and Southerners because of that accent. I think he did Quantum Leap and In the Heat of the Night. Well, I mean, he did uh, Quantum Leap. That says enough for me. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I, I bring that up because I find uh, in this episode we also see that Klingon culture is very much a Shakespearean play. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if this is because of their pre-existing love for Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Or I, if um, it's just that their culture has always mimicked that... Uh, that cadence, that way of communicating that uh, is a bit more verbose than our normal casual conversation. It's also very I direct. Mean, we, we we learn later that these guys love opera. 
So, I mean, the feudal culture, the sense of drama, uh, I, I think it just matches um, matches their all their elements just right um, in terms of, of tone and style. They just happen to have a lot in, a lot in common with Shakespeare. I, um, I know there's that bit in Star Trek VI when they claim that Shakespeare is a Cleon. Nope. Yeah, Shakespeare is a Cleon original. <laughs> um, which I, I kind of attributed to just... You know, Cleon history has a lot of parallels so to certain Shakespearean plays, and therefore they look at human Shakespeare like, no, these are our stories. You must have stolen them at some point. Yeah, of course. Um, that couldn't possibly have been someone else writing. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, you know, Cleon history does have stories like Macbeth's story and like uh, Titus Andronicus' story and Romeo and Juliet. Um, and as a, it's one of those conversion evolution things from the original series. Where, you know, instead of being a planet exactly like Earth, as it just so happens that their history looks a lot like Shakespeare stories. And continues um, to be effectively a Shakespeare story. Oh yeah, yeah. So I um I ran a role playing game, a Star Trek fate based role playing game, and one of the stories to open up the second season was gonna be they go through a a time portal and they end up um in the ancient history of Kronos. And they see a guy's like, oh, look, it's it's Emperor Macbeth. And Macbeth is like, I'm not an emperor yet. And they're like the three witches from Macbeth who foretold that he would oh, that's um, great. become emperor. Yeah. So they get caught up in the historical Macbeth of the Cleons. But um, one, one thing kind I, of talking over this heart to heart. Hmm? Uh, I was going to say, one other thing I really uh, in, enjoyed about this episode, just one of those scenes that stood out to me, is Worf trying to teach Alexander how to hold a batleth. <laughs> Like, yeah. I get that Klingons grow at a faster rate, but this child is one year old and you're handing them a blade. Yeah. I mean, at the very <laughs> worst, he's going to stick that in some electrical panel, you know? It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Just I, let him play with the knife. I mean, you know, think about Klingons for a second. You know, Duras has had like 12 kids and like a third of them died. From just dumb Cleon things, so yeah. But like, I figure, you know, like like us human parents, the first one you're at least really careful about. It's by like the fourth or fifth that you're finally like, oh yeah, Jimmy's you know putting the fork in the socket again, whatever. Yeah. But you know, the first three are just for experimenting. Yeah, like, and you just like need to make sure that oh my god, I don't break this thing. So so Worf just goes and he's like, here you go, kid. Here's a giant blade that you can probably can't even hold up, and expects him to like. Yeah. Be a warrior. To already know about that stuff. So, but I mean, given that they grow up so quickly, like in eight years, uh, Alexander becomes old enough to be a warrior. Um, so I can see why you'd start training them just as young as you possibly can. And I'm disappointed that he became a warrior because he says specifically in this episode he doesn't want to be a warrior. That has never been his character arc at all. Like, not yeah, even a little bit. Yeah, and it's like. Child, what happened? Why didn't you follow your dreams and become like a painter? And then the notion that I know, I know, we're now complaining about an episode of Deep Space Nine, but like the notion that Riker wouldn't step foot on a uh, Riker, Alexander would not step foot on the Cleon ship and be immediately stabbed by Cleons. Yeah, and it's like he wouldn't last two minutes on a Cleon ship. And so, of course, right after uh, Worf uh, shows Alexander a little bit about how to be a warrior. They go back to Kalar's quarters to find blood everywhere. Yeah. 
So Worf calls, of course, calls you know medical emergency, and yeah. finds out that oh, it was Duras who did it, and uh, we're, we're still getting to that mystery. So was, Kalar expects this rapport with Picard to pay uh, off, and it does not. No. Which is the most intriguing thing of all, right? Because Picard's this laid-back, uh, empathetic, open type of guy. And she's like, whoa, I thought we had a peer relationship here. We were sharing ideas, and suddenly you're just going to lock me out like that? Well, I think Picard does sense a bit of her own personal, you know, ideals. And see that she's trying to push things a certain way herself as well. And Picard, <laughs> great bit from Gowron. Picard is, you know, the integrity guy, and he's like, "Well, if I'm going to be the arbiter, if I'm going to actually do this, I have to do it right, and I can't just, you know, have Kalar with her own agenda pushing me in a direction." Yeah. You know, from his so. from his side, it makes sense. <laughs> oh man, Gowron's so great in this scene because he comes across like such an a hole. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Garon continuously comes across as a complete asshole. You will do that guy a favor, and he'll be like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah. I mean, given that we already know Duros is dirty, we're like, well, naturally, if Garon manages to be anything but a complete asshole, we'll know who we're rooting for. Yeah. And then Garon shows up, and he's a complete asshole. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, great. They're, they're both assholes, yeah. and we don't know which one's the worst one. Yeah, it's like, oh shit, I guess they're they're still Cleons. The bar was so, so low for Gowron, and he still couldn't do yeah. it. Alright. So I think I think there's a tendency to think of him as a good guy. We kind of root for him here. Worf picks his side in the Civil War. Um, but really, when you look back on it, Gowron has always been an a-hole. Oh, totally. Uh, and like to the point where, like, even though Worf effectively helps him. Later in DS9, he's yeah. a complete dick to Worf all the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. He um, And it's very... I don't know, Gowron's character feels very real. It feels very much like a politician uh, from our government, where you know the things he believes in are the things that are convenient for him. There's a lot of posturing. There's a lot of um, hypocrisy. Absolutely. And he's willing to let you help him, but he's not ever going to acknowledge that you did it. He's never going to yeah. come out and be like, oh, man, I want to thank Worf. He helped me so much. No, he's just going to be like, yeah. hey, Worf. This is what we bargained for. Yeah. No, you got exactly what you bargained for no more. Yeah. It, it, he seems like the kind of guy I would not want to be friends with. <laughs> yeah. So, um, interesting leader, you know, if he's advocating for you. But I'm not sure if Gowron advocates for anyone but Gowron. Oh no, he's entirely self-centered. So I get maybe maybe that's we kind of assume that about him because he always seems to be on his own side, but we never get that next layer of Gowron. You know what I mean? We always see Gowron the the wannabe Chancellor and Gowron the Chancellor and Gowron the corpse later, uh, but we never see like Gowron the dad. You know what I mean? No, <laughs> no. So many kids yet never around. Yeah. So, um, but still, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And so he bribes Kal uh, Kalar, which is great. Just more, more dirt. Yeah. In a show about honor, we get to see who will possibly become chancellor. Just straight out bribing someone. 
Yeah. But uh, not not very subtly. No, not at all. And I, doesn't she call him out on it? Like just basically calling him a Ferengi. I think she does. I, I think she calls him out and just is like, "You sound like a Ferengi," and that is just such an insult. Even though oh, yeah. at this point the Ferengi are still next gen Ferengi, you know, who in at least in season one we were threatened were cannibals. Uh, yeah, you know they're um, they're not quite at that like stingy, you know. Oh, we're weak, but we all we care about is profit, and we're gonna, you know, do everything behind your back. Like there were still some fighting Ferengi yeah. back then. the The characterization of the Ferengi, I think we last got was in the one where they kidnapped the Waxana Troy, where their bizarre misogyny is still neck and neck with their libertarian values. So, um, yeah. But, um, you know, I, th- I think the point's made um, that he's not acting like a Cleon. He's acting, um, you know, like a negotiator, like someone who's just doing deals. Absolutely. He, he's there oh. to become the leader, and that's so very apparent because that is his only motivation. Yeah. I think here Data mentions a shift of power in the Quadrant, which might be one of the earlier mentions of, you know this region of geopolitical space as a quadrant. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's an earlier reference to the fact that there is areas of space maybe that we don't know about, but space is divided in a way that we will later find out more about. Um, and yeah, it's when the potential threat of Duras becoming leader and you know having Romulans on his side would really mess up the Federation. They could effectively probably conquer the Federation if they combine their forces. Yeah. And there's a, a balance of power where, um, you know, any two of them can beat the third. The Federation's partners with the Cleons, but the Federations are pacifists. So they have this precarious balance. Yeah, they're, they're that guy in the middle, kind of just keeping the other two guys away from each other and hoping that they don't just turn around and take him out. I mean, we assume, uh, you know, I like to think that there's no reason for the Cleons to be so technologically advanced. Um, and while I expect the Romulans to have a lot of resources from being mysterious and conquering new technology, the Federation's got to have a long diplomatic reach and a lot of very diverse technologies. Um, whereas generally we just see them as one big political entity with... Uh, kind of uh, cut-and-paste ships, you know? Absolutely. But I, I wonder what that technology would be or what that thing that they're able to hold over the Klingons uh, and keep themselves in their position of strength is because the Klingons and Romulans both have cloaking technology. They've got one up on the Federation right there. Um, I think in the... In the episode where Troy wakes up as a, as a Romulan, they mention buoys, like static sensor emplacements along the border that can detect uh, cloaked ships. So, yeah, I think it, I think cloaking after a certain point in this series acts like uh, stealth technology does for us today, where it doesn't make you invisible, it just makes it very hard to detect you from a certain distance. Yeah, or you have to be looking for the right thing. Uh, neutrino exactly. missions? I think that's one of the things. So, if, oh, and here we get follow up on there, the discommendation. 
Yeah, so we, we eventually find out that, yeah, it was Durs' dad who uh, basically plotted and, you know, framed Worf's dad. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I think we all sort of re- thought that, yeah, that's probably what was going on there with how uh, Worf and Picard were acting. But they yeah. finally get that confirmation. Right. <laughs> I like Cleon Investigations. <laughs> I'm just picturing a bunch of Cleon hitting it with sticks, just going to the blast site, hammering everything with sticks. Yeah. Well, you know, they got to be very scientific with their sticks. Notice that they yeah. use sticks and not blades. See? Scientific. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so. Yeah, so... Thankfully. He, he finds out, and, uh, of course, it's very quickly after that we then get uh, Dr. Crusher reporting on uh, what she's found from the bomb that went off. Uh, yeah. And what, Which is that it was inside of a dude's arm. Yeah. <laughs> inside of a dude's arm. Like, must suck to be that dude. Like, you're, you're gonna just lose an arm and probably die, but hey, it's all for honor that doesn't exist. Yeah, I don't know what that one's all about. You know, maybe maybe Duras is like, hey, look, you dishonored yourself. I won't tell anyone. Your family's going to go free. But if I do tell, you'd be executed. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you do this bomb thing for me. Yeah. And the guy does it to Duras definitely seems like the kind of guy with those no scruples where we just take someone who, like, you're probably going to die anyways and your family's going to be shamed. So just do this for me and I'll make sure one part of that doesn't happen. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh man, I uh, I like that the Cleons are the only people in this universe who seem to have any cybersecurity. Yeah, because he finds out about this access quick. Yeah. Oh, I guess he had a guy. Yeah, he must have had a guy on the inside. So we find out that okay, it was Doris's side that did the bombing, and now Kalar's dead. And uh, so yeah. that's where we get the scene where. Uh, Alexander just runs away while Worf is howling the death ritual. And Worf just looks I, at him and says, You've never seen well, death? He, and Alexander shakes his he head. It's one of the best lines. Like, yeah. the kid is one year old. No, he's probably not seen a ton of death of Worf. And so he just points the body and says, Then look and always remember. Yeah. But this is a great face off between Kalar and Duras right now. I, um,. Where she she kind of puts everything together. Um, some pretty good detective work. Yeah, she she's she's got that uh, CSI going on. Yeah, uh, she is super cool. Unfortunately, she fun. doesn't know when to you know not open the door. Apparently. Yeah, there's a little, there's a slight miscalculation here, uh, for her where she is totally right about things. It turns out Batleths do not care if you're right. Absolutely not. Yeah. And uh, that, of course, carries no uh, no message on today's society or culture at all. <laughs> There's nothing we can yeah. gain from that whatsoever. Yeah. I, um... So, here we get a little bit more for the mystery. Is this when we learn that it's Duras? Uh, we l- we had learned that Duras was uh, Duras's father had been the one to uh, 
Framewarf's dad. Doctor Crusher now uh, has figured out that it's Duras' side that did the bombing, and Kalar, okay. right as she dies, you know, Worf thinks it's Galron. He's like Galron, and she says, shakes her head, Duras. And uh, okay. so Worf now knows that it was Duras who killed her, and uh, he's rightly pretty pissed. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, yeah, he goes back to his quarters, he takes his sash off, he takes his combat badge off, <laughs> and he just grabs the fucking Batleth, and he is yeah. out for blood. Yeah. I, um... But this is great. This is, um... When we see her die. Again, we like her. It's played... Uh, a very emotional scene. I don't know. It just works for me with Worf and Kalar here. Absolutely. I, oh, I should also mention that right after Worf tells his son Alexander to look at his dead dead mom, mm-hmm. Alexander shortly thereafter asks. Uh, so he says, uh, "Worf says I." Or Alexander says, "I miss her." Worf says, "I miss her too." Alexander listens and says, "Are you my father?" And Worf just says, "Yes." I am your father. Yeah. Like, yeah. you find out that this kid is, you know, this kid, or this kid finds out that Worf is his dad the same day his mom dies, basically. Well, I mean, you want to have a safety parent. Yeah, it's, you know, you always know? have a backup Just, plan. And, you know, exactly. You know, single kids who have single parents out there, get your parents to find a partner. Get them hooked up, just get them on Tinder, whatever. <laughs> but you know, get yourself a backup parent just in case. Yeah, it's a good idea. You never know when a Klingon's gonna stab your mom. Yeah, this is great work from from Michael Dorn, by the way, in terms of panic and then grief, and then saying, "Hey, look, this is a this is a necessary part of the life of a Klingon. You know, look into it." Yeah, from from our culture, it's definitely weird as shit that he's like, yeah, look at your dead mom. Look at her. But it. it makes sense from their culture where he wants his son to be a warrior. He expects his son to see plenty of death, so he can't have his kid, you know, getting upset because yeah. he sees his dead mom. <laughs> that would be absolutely unacceptable. And so he goes to his quarters, he gets his uh, bat left. It's the first time we see a bat left. And then he tosses his com his combat onto a table, but it kind of falls off, and that's such a great little bit. I don't know if that was on purpose or not. I because it just hits a stick and then plops right off. Yeah, it's like it, did they did they reshoot it and kept that edit, or were they just like we're only going to shoot this once and whatever happens happens. Either way, I like it because everything in the Federation is so nice and clean. It really resonates when as Worf is about to get dirty, he throws it. And it doesn't just wind up on the table like you would expect. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 one of these, um, like, the intention is thwarted slightly, which you rarely ever see in television. But um, I would I, I forget who, who directed this one. It may have been Frakes. I don't know. Um, but I, I would love to ask that person. Ab- absolutely. This, uh, this was a Jonathan Frakes direction. Oh, damn. And, uh, he, he probably doesn't. He nails it, man. I just want to take a quick second to shout out how good of a director Jonathan Frakes is. Um, yeah. I I don't know your position on Discovery. Uh, I don't. I haven't watched it. Okay, that's that's totally fair. Uh, I am on the side that I am so on board with it. I know a lot of Trek fans are poo pooing it. It's not my Trek. That kind of thing. 
But Jonathan Frakes has directed a lot of episodes on it, and his work shows every episode Jonathan Frakes directs tends to be just a great episode. He knows how to get the best out of his friends. Yeah, well, it's good. I um, I like that Duras uses a sword. In the original series, um, they mentioned Cleons like using swords. So Yeah, they haven't switched completely over uh, to the Batleth uh, at yeah. this point in the series. Uh, I noticed there was no uh, Detach. Um, there was no Metleth, yeah. you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. We don't see the Metleth until DS9. Yeah. we got to be like, Worf got a new cool weapon. Of course, you know. So. New show, shiny new toy. Yeah. Also, despite the fact that Worf's been dis discommendated, uh, he still gets um, a well-blocked shot. Just He knocks the guy down, they come in, and that's when he goes for the death blow. Yeah, he, he's right on it, you know. He may not have honor, but the dude can fight. <laughs> yeah, and it wobbles. the Batleth wobbles a little bit because it's made of rubber. But um, still, though... Uh, it's just very great, and there's no doubt that he just sinks that thing double-handed into Duras's chest. It's very violent for the next generation. Yeah, this whole episode but, is, like, pretty gory for the next gen. Oh, yeah. You know, it's surprising. Kalar, she, she gets got pretty hard. They, they went heavy oh, on yeah. the blood. Oh, they did. It's everywhere. I, um... You know, they stab a dead body with pain sticks. <laughs> a dude explodes. Yeah, um, they they don't they don't belabor that of course, but still, it's, this is just one of those let the bodies hit the floor episodes, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. So and, and I here we kind of I find it interesting because mm -hmm. while they're fighting, you know, Worf reminds Duras that like, you know, if he dies, like the truth goes with him, and Worf's gonna be a oh, traitor, yeah. and Worf is just like, that fine, fine. He yep. just wants to kill Duras. Oh, yeah. It's one of those moments where, you know, Cleon tradition and rules of honor nicely uh, link in to, to satisfying certain emotional needs. Yeah. And then, um, I, uh, I was going to say, Riker and Data burst in. Riker tries to get Worf to stop, and Worf's just like, nah, bro. <laughs> just yeah. puts the Batlas right through Dross's chest. Again, more gore. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, he's he's kind of in the middle of the fight. Yeah. So, um, you know, could he have stopped? You know, did he choose not to? Was he in the middle of Cleon Bloodlust? Well, and um, if he, he stopped, just... he's probably, you know, Duras isn't honorable. Duras is going to kill <laughs> Worf the second he gets the chance. Yeah. So Worf really Duras is just the keeping himself alive. Yeah. So, I, um... It's good though. I mean, it's got it's got the action quotient. It's got the drama quotient. It's got you know, a couple of sci-fi things thrown in there. Yeah, and and, um, and the diplomacy. Oh yeah, and, uh, and that's you know as we finish up the episode, Worf uh, gets the absolute talking down to by Picard. Oh yeah, you know Picard understands that he's on a multicultured crew. You know he explains to Worf like everyone has their beliefs, and I respect them. <laughs> But you're a part of Starfleet, bud, and if you can't do this uh, because of the demands of your society, you should resign. You want to resign, one bud? Of the, one of the things I, I kind of regret about this franchise is that 
Worf has a lot of conflicts between his culture and his duty to Starfleet. I don't think they ever consistently um, set those boundaries up or philosophically talk about those boundaries. Um, you know, he gets to wear his his baldric. Uh, Ro Laren can't wear an earring. Yeah, there's definitely some like on the down low racism going on in Starfleet. Uh, I, you know, for some reason, the Bajorans, I guess because they're uh, sub warp tech uh, species at this point they don't get to have their culture respected yeah i it's just not consistent i think that's the issue where you know Worf can wear the baldric but he can't participate in honorable combat that's completely natural to his culture yeah like does he you get Klingon I mean? holidays off we, we never yeah, find that out you know? yeah it's like okay this dude killed duras and it's perfectly acceptable in their culture for Worf to kill this guy. The guy's not another Klingon. It's not like Worf went sick house on a Bolian. You know, it's another Klingon. Like, they're fine with that. Yeah, with just reason. So, yeah. And but Picard's all angry about it, I guess. He, I mean, he's angry, but he probably could have done a lot worse. I mean, it, yeah. going on that line of, you know, duty to Starfleet and, you know, cultural beliefs, uh, Picard gives him the lightest slap on the wrist he can i mean he doesn't get yeah. put on suspension mm-hmm. he doesn't you know he's not forced to go take shore leave anywhere like this guy's yeah. back on patrol the next day yeah but he gets put on report which for wharf is worse than all oh of, of course you know you got, you got a little report uh, you know dude should have probably been suspended for a while possibly <laughs> demoted I, I don't know what for though i mean did he leave the scene of a murder did he? Well, he um, he transported onto the Vorn without permission, with the explicit uh, desire to kill uh, a Klingon politician. I mean, that's a Klingon issue, though. Totally. I, mean, I think it. I think it craps in Picard's diplomatic mess kit, but. But you know, get it's, over it's it, a Klingon man. issue. But if you're Starfleet, you know you can't have your guys going out and do that. Potentially, almost starting wars. I mean, but the Klingons were fine with it. Oh, they were. Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully, they were fine with it. But it's like, if a kid steals a candy bar from a store, you're probably going to ground them for a month, even if the shop owner says, it's, it's okay, they're just like... It's like, no, you're grounded for a damn month, and you'll be lucky to have electricity. I do, I do not see Picard's angle of this. I disagree. But we're going to roll credits here. Final thoughts on this episode. Great episode. Uh, you know, when... When we reach out to uh, figure out what episode we'd be talking about, uh, I was so excited to see this on the list and watch it again. And uh, I was lucky enough to watch it with my partner who hasn't watched D- uh, Next Gen in order, doesn't you know remember most of the episodes. So seeing her experience uh, this dive into Klingon culture was really great. And she was instantly enthralled. I think this is a great episode. If you want to show someone, this is the Klingons. <laughs> At their best and worst, this is one of those great episodes to do that with. Yeah, it's a heck of an episode. So, um, all right. So uh, next week, I'm going to be watching Future Imperfect, which is a great uh, Riker episode. I'm going to see that then. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what you do? Absolutely. Uh, so right now, I uh, work with a gaming group. We're called Simbad. It's for a game called Elite Dangerous. We create a community for people to come together and play their video games. It's not focused just around one game. 
and we're actually we actually recently started our own podcast uh, where we talk about our own fruit, which is a bit interesting. And we've got lots of contests and events, and we have on our books planned for the new year. We're going to be starting a series called What the Trek, and what okay. we're going to be doing is we're going to take an episode from each of the series from the same week, so say season one, episode four of every series. And we're going to battle them. We're going to find out what series was best every week of Star Trek. And we're going to find out what series, in our opinions, ends up being the best. So, yeah, if you want to check us out, uh, hit us up on Twitter. It's Simbad Gaming. Uh, we're going to have links to the show when it comes out on there. And if you want to just find some cool people to play video games with, that's what we're here for. We're a very inclusive community. And we just want people to enjoy video games with a bunch of other cool people. All right. That sounds good. So uh, go ahead and check it out. I'll be back next week with Future Imperfect. And until then, remember Rand. Hey, I'll make this short because everyone hates credits. Star Trek is owned by CBS Television Studios and Paramount Pictures. We watch Star Trek on Netflix. We hold our conversations on Google Hangouts. And we record with Audacity, the free audio editor and recorder. All files are hosted on vanvelding.com, hosted by DreamPress, powered by WordPress. If you have any questions or comments about the Beige and the Bold, please feel free to leave a comment at vanvelding.com or tweet at vanvelding. Thank you, and remember Rand.